From WWNO in New Orleans and WRKF in Baton Rouge, this is Louisiana Considered. I'm Alana Schreiber. On the show today, we check in with Los Ileños Museum and Complex in St. Bernard Parish to learn about their upcoming Spanish heritage celebration. And Metro reporter Carly Berlin gives us the latest on the future of the Claiborne Expressway. But first, it's Friday, and that means it's time to catch up on This Week in Politics with Stephanie Grace, columnist and editorial director for the Times-Picayune New Orleans Advocate. Stephanie, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. You went to an event yesterday with four leading candidates in the fall governor race. Who was there? Well, the four Republicans were there, which was not surprising because it was a meeting of the uh, Louisiana Association of Business and Industry. Uh, People call it lobby, and it is known as really the big business lobby in the state. Um, Very powerful group politically and very much kind of in line with the, um, the Republican Party on you know, more kind of fiscal business issues than social issues, although not really not social issues necessarily. Well, what did they talk about? So it was interesting. It was um, it wasn't a forum where they spoke to each other. Each one was gave a statement and was interviewed by Steve Wagesback, who's the head of lobby. So the candidates were Jeff Landry, the attorney general, John Schroeder, the state treasurer, Sharon Hewitt, who's a state senator from Slidell, and um, Richard Nelson, who is a state representative from Mandeville. So all four of them are running as business-oriented Republicans. Landry's gotten the most attention. He, of course, is the kind of culture warrior, lead culture warrior of the state. He is going, you know, reportedly to be getting Donald Trump's endorsement. He has the endorsement of the state Republican Party. And he is the one kind of leading the charge at this these days against libraries, kind of in line with this national movement to restrict content that concerns um, LGBT issues, things like that. So it's what one thing that was interesting is he didn't talk about that at all yesterday, because of course, that's not the crowd that would go for this. This is a, a business oriented crowd. And a few things happened that kind of struck me as interesting looking forward. One is I don't think this is the same conversation we would have if Louisiana had an only Republican primary, because these candidates weren't, even though they were Republicans and in a Republican room, although a room where there's also a lot of support for John Bell Edwards, frankly, they kind of moved to the middle a little. And, you know, Jeff Landry, again, culture warrior, Trump candidate, Republican Party candidate. One of the things he pointed out was when he was in Congress, he had the most bipartisan record, voting record of any member in Louisiana. Um, there was some talk about tax reform. Richard Nelson is proposing eliminating the state income tax in Louisiana to match what they do in more prosperous states like Florida and Texas. Um, you know, he has a plan. He acknowledges that other taxes would need to be raised, which, of course, is the problem with or the the challenge with selling that point of view. A few of the other candidates said, oh, yes, of course, we need to get rid of the income tax. But they, you know, they didn't really have a plan and they kind of, you know, their hearts didn't seem in it. So that would be Landry and Schroeder. Landry kind of came out with this comment saying, you know, we're it's suggesting we're the only southern state that has an income tax, which is not true at all. Texas and Florida don't. Tennessee doesn't. But others have actually higher income taxes than we have. So, you know, it just kind of suggests that he hasn't really thought the issue through. That's not going to be his focus. All of these candidates are Republicans, and there is an expectation, a widespread expectation that the next governor will be a Republican. 
But there are a lot of voters out there who are Democrats or independents or moderates. And in an open primary system, their votes are important, too. So, you know, I'm starting to hear the beginnings of appeals to those voters, as well as the kind of Jeff Landry voter or the business Republican voter. And before we go, what are the updates on the recall? Well, the big news this week was that there was a settlement between the organizers and Secretary of State Kyle Ardwin over this contested issue of active versus inactive voters, which for the for the purpose of the recall election, that gives you the number of how many how many good signatures they need to have to force a recall. There were questions of whether people who were listed as active voters should have been inactive voters and therefore should not have been counted in the total, which will give you the total, you have to have 20% of active voters to force a recall. So what the Secretary of State did was basically say, agree to reduce the number by 25,000, which reduces the number of required signatures by 5,000. Of course, we still don't know how many signatures they have because they haven't told us. And there's a lot of pushback against this. I think Latoya Cantrell probably will sue because these voters, the, that number is not connected to individual voters. It's an estimate. And that um, it doesn't mean people will be removed from the polls. It It is not a purge. Um, but when people have all these questions about how election works these days, you know, I, I'm sure it's going to be um, very confusing for people and also be kind of used in political rhetoric in different ways that that might be effective because you know, there are so many issues swirling around voters and voting and voter rolls these days. So I think it's even messier than it was this time last week. Hard to imagine how this could get any messier. Stephanie, thank you so much. Stephanie Grace, columnist and editorial director for the Times-Picayune New Orleans Advocate. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. From WWNO in New Orleans and WRKF in Baton Rouge, you're listening to Louisiana Considered. I'm Alana Schreiber. This weekend, Los Ileños Museum Complex will host the Los Ileños Festival from 11 a.m. to 10 p.m. to celebrate the Spanish culture and history in St. Bernard Parish. This history all began in the 1700s when a group of settlers from the Canary Islands moved to the region and is celebrated each year at the annual fiesta. Here to tell us more about the Spanish heritage of St. Bernard Parish and the upcoming festival is Bill Highland, parish historian for St. Bernard Parish and director of Los Ileños Museum Complex and secretary of Los Ileños Society. Thanks for joining us today. Alana, thank you for this wonderful opportunity. Well, let's start with the history. Of course, Louisiana was a Spanish colony from 1763 to 1803, but why did settlers from the Canary Islands specifically come to St. Bernard Parish in the 1700s? What were these early settlements like? Well, the reasons are twofold. First, at the end of the French period, there were simply very, very few European colonists and Africans and free people of color living in Louisiana, Spanish Louisiana, from the Gulf of Mexico to Canada. Believe it or not, only about 15,000 people. Today, St. Bernard Parish has a population of 50,000 people. So very sparsely populated province. Uh, the British had already gained at the end of the French colonial period control of Louisiana's colonial economy. 
Merchants from the Atlantic seaboard had established thriving businesses there. And also even our very first Jewish person, Isaac Monsanto, had come here, uh, engaging in the rum trade. In any event, the result was, Spain said, Louisiana is important to us as a barrera, a barrier to British colonial expansion west of the Mississippi River. In order to make Louisiana that barrera, she had to bring people here. So Spain recruited almost 3,000 Canary Islanders between 1777 and 1782 to come to Louisiana. Spain also, in the same colonization program, brought the vast majority of Acadian refugees, Cajuns, who had fled Nova Scotia and returned to France. More than 2,500 Cajuns were brought to Louisiana at the expense of the Spanish crown. Also, there were 14, 15 families from Malaga in the mainland of Spain who founded a beautiful city today on the banks of Bayou Teche, Nueva Iberia, New Iberia. Also, in terms of the Canary Islands themselves, they were halfway on the sailing route between Europe and the Americas. The Canary Islands became the gateway to the Americas. So the people coming from the mainland of Spain, including many Sephardis who had to become conversos, even they were coming to Louisiana. So for instance, here in, in, in Louisiana, if you have Canary Island ancestry, every last one of us has Sephardic Jewish ancestry. Well, can you tell us a little bit more about the Spanish influence on the region today? How is it still seen in St. Bernard Parish today? And how does the Los Ileños Museum Complex keep that history alive? Well, when you come to St. Bernard Parish and you see the names Acosta, which we have anglicized to Acosta, Rodriguez, Rodriguez, Manessas, Gonzalez, these are all names of Canary Islanders who founded St. Bernard Parish, despite floods of the river, despite, despite wars, the Battle of New Orleans, the Civil War, despite epidemics, despite catastrophic hurricanes. The Islanios are still here. They're going nowhere. So we have these names. We have the elder members of our community who are in their 70s, 80s, and 90s. And many of them, as a matter of fact, the majority of them speak the idioma canaria, the idiom, the, the idiom of Spanish spoken in the Canary Islands as their first language. When I was a little boy and would come here in the 1960s and 70s and visit with our family, they didn't speak a word of English, or if they spoke English, it was very halting. I never forget, I met Tia Chica when I was five years old, and so she spoke to me in Spanish, and then I was able to respond to her in French. And she got a big, happy smile on her face, and she said, Mijo, aquí no habla francés, aquí no habla inglés, aquí se habla español. We don't speak French or English here, we speak Spanish. So that was my first, in, you know, induction in, or indoctrination into this community. They were wonderful people. 
So what we've done here is we do have nine structures, 22 acres, and a nature trail. And what we do here through a series of exhibitions in the different buildings is discuss the origin of the ancestors in the Canary Islands. We have a research library open by appointment. So the, those are some of the things that we do here. I know that the Homa Nation tribe will also have representatives in attendance this weekend. Can you just tell me a little bit about the history of the relationship between the Homa Nation and the Spanish settlers and how that relationship has been preserved or changed over time? So here at the museum complex, we want to look at the other ethnic groups who contributed to the evolution of the Canarian cultural identity in St. Bernard. And in the last century, there's been a great deal of intermarriage between Canary Island families here and Homa families, because many of the Homas started coming here in the early 20th century to trap. We know here in St. Bernard, we did have separate schools for white and black, but where the Native Americans were concerned, they were considered white people, so they went to school with the white children. Uh, same thing with the Filipinos. The Filipinos came here at the very end of the 18th century and the beginning of the 19th century. They first came aboard Spanish ships. They established on the shores of Lake Bourne in St. Bernard Parish, St. Malo, which is the oldest Filipino settlement in the United States. And I have many Filipino cousins. And the same thing with the homeless. I have cousins who are Homa descendants. So we really are very much interconnected here. Sounds like this event is going to be a very big cultural hodgepodge. We are speaking with Bill Highland, parish historian of St. Bernard Parish, director of Los Ileños Museum Complex, and secretary of Los Ileños Society. Bill, can you tell us a bit more about the festival itself? I imagine there's food, music, dancing. Tell us about these events and what I understand are the living history performances. All right. Well, first of all, let's look at living history. We have living history, and in that particular instance, we have the homeless who have built a palmetto hut here on our grounds, and they have also a medicine garden. So we have many tribal elders coming out and they will greet the public and tell them about the Homa language, tell them about the, the medicine garden and the herbal value of the different plants. By the way, the Canary Islanders learned from the Native Americans how to use those herbs. In terms of living history, we will have oyster knife makers, we have a blacksmith, we will have uh, people talking about the genealogies of the Canary Island settlements. Our sister organization in Baton Rouge, the Canary Islanders Heritage Society, will be here talking about the two settlements in Baton Rouge vicinity. One of them was Galvestown. After that settlement failed, the Canary Islanders were sent to what is today Baton Rouge, and that's why there is in Baton Rouge a neighborhood called Spanish Town. So they talk about those things. Uh, we have the quilting ladies. We have a quilting committee that meets here every week. Inside the barroom, we're going to have Spanish wine, chorizo, queso manchego, manchego cheese from Spain, wine from the Spanish mainland, 
We're going to have wine from the Canary Islands. We then, then, then under our food port, we're going to have ropa vieja, potaje, which is a meal in a pot stew with a pickled pork as the base meat. We're going to have homemade flan. Well, that sounds like a lot of fun. Well, before I let you go, you touched on this a little bit earlier, but you know, why is this event so personal for you? What's your connection here? And, and what do you hope that all the guests can learn and take away? Well, of course, you know, it means a lot to me because I've been working on this since 1976. And to have known the community elders and to have seen and to understand what they went through to live here and still to maintain their cultural identity, it was just an incredible gift that I received. And while I cannot give today what those people gave to me, we can still transmit to people the fact that after two and a half centuries almost, we're still here, we're proud of our heritage, everyone is welcome to come and join us as we celebrate that heritage. This has been Bill Highland, parish historian of St. Bernard Parish, director of Los Ileños Museum Complex, and secretary of Los Ileños Society. Bill, thanks so much for being here and have fun this weekend. Alana, thank you so much. From WWNO in New Orleans and WRKF in Baton Rouge, you're listening to Louisiana Considered. I'm Alana Schreiber. Claiborne Avenue was once the Black Wall Street for New Orleans. That changed when Interstate 10 was built there in the 1960s, cutting through the heart of Treme, one of the oldest Black neighborhoods in the nation. Back in December, we reported on two proposals to a new federal program that could help determine Claiborne's future. And this week, the U.S. Department of Transportation made a big decision. Here to tell us more is WWNO's Metro reporter, Carly Berlin. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. So, Carly, what exactly was this big decision we learned about this week? So on Tuesday, the U.S. Department of Transportation announced the first round of awards for the Reconnecting Communities program. A little bit of a recap. It's a new program established through the Bipartisan Infrastructure Law, and its goal is to help stitch together neighborhoods that were divided by highways or railroads or other transportation infrastructure in generations past. And the Claiborne Expressway has been kind of front and center since the program was first announced. The White House called it out as basically a textbook example of an interstate getting built through a Black neighborhood, something that was really common in American cities in the 50s and 60s. And now the the news is that on Tuesday, we learned the state's transportation department got some money for a project they put forward for Claiborne, $500,000, but... It's a tiny, tiny fraction of what they asked for, like 1%. Okay, so what is the project that they're hoping to do? What will that money go towards? Yeah, so the state's proposal, which they crafted with city officials, outlines a $95 million project for Claiborne. They were hoping the Reconnecting Communities program would cover half of that. And they wanted to do a few main things. First off, they had budgeted most of that money for maintenance on the expressway. 
They also wanted to spend a chunk of it on building a sort of public market space underneath the highway with performance stages, something called the Claiborne Innovation District. They also wanted to spend about a quarter of the proposed funds on potentially removing some of the highway on and off ramps that slice down into the Treme making it pretty unsafe for people navigating the neighborhood down on the surface street. And part of the funding would have gone toward building some road upgrades to make that whole area safer for people getting around walking or biking and putting in some better lighting too. But we don't totally know what the city and state will do now that they've only gotten this small grant. And we know that this wasn't the only application from New Orleans to the Reconnecting Communities program, right? Yeah, so on that note of planning and community engagement, a local nonprofit had put in a separate proposal to the program to do exactly that. The group is called the Claiborne Avenue Alliance Design Studio, and it's led by Amy Stelly, who's an architectural and urban designer, and she lives a block and a half from the highway in her childhood home in the Treme. For a long time, she's advocated for a different solution to address the highway's legacy, and that's take it down. And yeah, her her group didn't end up getting any funding from the program, which is definitely a bit of a setback. But I went to go catch up with her on Tuesday afternoon, and she's still hopeful about her fight to see the highway gone someday. That's partly because, you know, the state getting such a small grant means they can't really go forward with fixing the highway up and making that innovation district underneath it, things that Steli says aren't such a good idea. And one thing Steli is really dedicated to doing now is gathering data on the air and noise pollution that comes with living near the highway and the health impacts of that. So when I went to see her, she'd actually just gotten back from a meeting with the city's health department about that, and she hopes getting that information out will help guide what happens with Claiborne next. Here's Steli. And the state has to be willing to look at the data and make the cold, hard decisions about what has to happen for the future of this community, because you can't talk about equity and leave that thing up. And you reported she wasn't the only one left disappointed by the federal government's decision. Yeah, the U.S. Department of Transportation gave out grants to 45 different projects, most of them just for planning. But there were hundreds of applications that didn't make the cut, including a bunch across Louisiana in Shreveport and West Monroe and Lake Charles. And I think that really speaks to just how widespread this problem is, right? Infrastructure getting built through historically disadvantaged neighborhoods, leaving this long legacy of disinvestment people getting displaced, of businesses getting bulldozed, and people getting cut off from jobs. So it's this sort of fact almost baked into so many American cities. And, you know, this time there wasn't enough money to go around for all these places. You know, there will be future rounds of funding. There's going to be another new federal program created through the Inflation Reduction Act that aims to do some similar things. So, you know, there's definitely more, more to come on this for sure. Carly Berlin is the Metro reporter for WWNO. Thanks for being here. Thanks so much for having me, Alana. From WWNO in New Orleans and WRKF in Baton Rouge, this has been Louisiana Considered. I'm Alana Schreiber. Thanks to our guests, Stephanie Grace, Times-Picayune New Orleans advocate, editorial director, and columnist, 
Bill Highland, parish historian of St. Bernard Parish, director of Los Ileños Museum Complex, and secretary of Los Ileños Society, and Carly Berlin, Metro reporter for WWNO. Our digital editor is Caitlin Umholtz, and our engineers are Garrett Pittman and Aubrey Purcell. You can listen to Louisiana Considered Monday through Friday at 12 and 7.30 p.m. It's available on Spotify, Google Play, and wherever you get your podcasts. Major support for Louisiana Considered provided by Rouse's Markets, a Louisiana shopping experience. More at rouses.com with additional support from the Sazerac House.